Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, analyzing Ohio's pandemic response one year later. State Representative John Cross reflects on lessons that we learned, mistakes that were made, and the law of unintended consequences. Also this morning in our community and business spotlight, the United Way of Hancock County wants your input in preparing a strategic plan for the community moving forward post-pandemic. In our Throwback Thursday segment this morning, this isn't the first pandemic that humankind has faced throughout our history, and what will get us through this one is what always has before, cultivating resilience. And stories around the world, the Black Heritage Library and Findlay Hancock County Public Library are teaming up to teach children about the myriad of global cultures and traditions. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Thursday, March 11th, 2021. WFIN News, I'm John Marshall. The WTOL 11 first alert forecast is calling for rainy and windy conditions today with a high of 67. Scattered showers tonight at low 38. The dates have been set for the United Way of Hancock County's Days of Caring for this year. The service event will be held May 3rd through 7th. Last year, we caught up with Kate as she and others from Marathon were painting the Family Resource Center in Findlay. I mean, when we can volunteer to, you know, to help them with this kind of stuff. I mean, we've done, like, landscaping, we've done painting, we've done cleaning. Nonprofits can register their project, and volunteers can sign up for the May event online. We have the link and more information about the event on our website. Blanchard Valley Health System will be holding an online update about COVID vaccine distribution. The event will be held via Facebook Live today at noon. Blanchard Valley Health System President and CEO Myron Lewis and Dr. William Coase, Vice President of Special Projects, will be joined by Findlay Mayor Christina Mirren for a discussion regarding how distribution of the vaccine is going locally. A new study shows an added benefit for pregnant women who get the coronavirus vaccine. Dr. Joseph Gastaldo with Ohio Health says much like the flu vaccine, the COVID-19 vaccine shows protection for both the mom and the baby. When a pregnant woman chooses to be vaccinated and she's fully vaccinated, a study now has shown protective antibodies being expressed in the breast milk. Dr. Gastaldo says more than 20,000 pregnant women have received the COVID-19 vaccine and there have been no safety issues so far. That's ONN's Tracy Townsend reporting. Finley Municipal Court is giving people with a suspended driver's license an opportunity to resolve their issues. The third annual Finley Municipal Court DUS Day Clinic will be held in April. The goal of the clinic is to help people resolve their legal issues and get back on the road legally. Some people may even leave their appointment with their driving privileges restored. Get more on our website. More news online anytime at WFIN.com. I'm John Marshall with 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. Today, if you are looking for a reason to celebrate, today is debunking day. A day to set the record straight on all of that misinformation that is out there. Debunking day today. It is also dream day. Dream a little dream of me. This dream day. It is name tag day. So embrace those name tags. Somebody said once to me that if you have a job where you have to wear a name tag and you are over the age of 30, then you need to take a close look at your life. And I understand the sentiment uh, with that, but there are a lot of really good, solid jobs, careers 
where people wear name tags. Doctors wear name tags. Uh, military generals wear name tags. So, you know, the name tag is not necessarily uh, a bad thing. So, saluting the lowly name tag today. National Promposal Day. And we heard a few days back there will be proms this year. Um, last year, I think they all got canceled. I don't know anybody who actually had their prom uh, last year. This year, they will happen, although... Uh, from my understanding is they're not sure just yet whether there will be dancing allowed. <laughs> so I'm thinking, what? what's the point? Although, to be fair, for a lot of high school kids, they go to prom and they just kind of stand off in the corner anyway. So <laughs> if you bring in a DJ, you play tunes and nobody dances, well, that's kind of normal for proms. Um, <laughs> so there is that. It is Oatmeal Nut Waffles Day. Oatmeal Nut Waffles Day. Popcorn Lover's Day, World Kidney Day, World Plumbing Day, and Worship of Tools Day. <laughs> so, uh, show appreciation for all of those tools that allow us to get all of those things done. Like our plumbing. As well. Anyway, reasons to celebrate today. If you're looking for a uh, reason to celebrate. By the way... Uh, oatmeal nut waffles day that got me thinking about breakfast and I saw this on online the other day this apparently is the uh, latest viral sensation on TikTok I don't know if you're on TikTok if not I thought I would tell you about this because you need to know users of TikTok have created a new trend they are calling nature's cereal it is a recipe that gained momentum last week when pop star Lizzo tried it and declared that she was addicted to it. So this is now all the rage. Nature's Cereal. The grain-free cereal recipe comes from Nature's Food, uh, which is a TikTok account. I don't know if it's a business or an individual, but they call themselves Nature's Food. The original instructions have been viewed over 3 million times. The clip shows pomegranate, uh, pomegranate arils, uh, blackberries, and blueberries poured into a bowl topped with coconut milk. And then you just eat it like you would any other bowl of cereal. It is dubbed nature's cereal. While many have praised the recipe, others are more skeptical, writing that it seems more like an unprepared smoothie. So <laughs> so you can try it and you decide, but that is the uh, latest uh, breakfast sensation, the latest viral uh, video. Wanted to point that out. Nine days until spring. You know what uh, is going to come this uh, spring, summer? The cicadas. Uh, scientists from several U.S. universities say a brood of periodic periodical cicadas set to emerge from underground for the first time in 17 years. This is brood X, or the big brood, and will likely first emerge across the southern U.S. at the beginning of spring. So here very soon, then they will surface in states along the East Coast. Um, and uh, it says Americans can likely expect to see swarms across 15 states as the ground temperature warms. They are going to emerge in massive numbers. Dr. Michael Raup says, when I say massive, I mean massive. There are going to be as many as one and a half million cicadas per acre. Woo! Um, this is going to uh, translate up and down the coast of the Mississippi River. Police, uh, people say uh, billions and maybe 
trillions of these cicadas, black-bodied insects with bright red eyes that last appeared en masse in 2004. They generally die after two to four weeks. After they reproduce, they go back underground for another 17 years. What a life, huh? Um, they say people who might be afraid of cicadas should try to learn as much about them. They are harmless, but their mating calls are rather loud, and there are going to be millions, if not billions, if not trillions of them. And so, just prepare yourself. That's of all of the things that we look forward to in spring and summer. That is not one of them. A couple of uh, interesting stories. Uh... For among the first things you need to know this morning, the most buzzworthy news stories off the wire here. Let you know right out of the gate. We mentioned yesterday uh, there is a move afoot to turn daylight saving time into a permanent thing. And now a bipartisan group of U.S. senators has introduced legislation that would follow up on what we were talking about yesterday. Legislation has been introduced called the Sunshine Protection Act that would make daylight saving time permanent. Republican Senator Marco Rubio of Florida is one of the measure's co-sponsors, cited several benefits of making the change, including helping reduce the risk of seasonal depression and reducing the number of car accidents. Democratic Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts, who also backs the measure, says studies would have shown it would improve public health public safety, and mental health, especially important during this cold and dark COVID winter. Although the cold and dark COVID winter is almost over, but I get the sentiment there. Daylight saving time currently in effect for eight months out of the year, starting on the second Sunday in March, which is this coming Sunday, of course, and ending on the first Sunday in November. Hawaii and Arizona are the only states that do not observe daylight saving time. So, Again, we will continue to follow that story as it develops. Follow-up legislation has been introduced. And how about this? I saw this on the Newswire a couple of days ago, actually, and I was hanging on to this. Uh, but I want to I mention this because I think this is just awful. A Mexican restaurant in Houston. Now, you remember uh, Houston, Texas, uh, has lifted all of its statewide mask mandates and and all of that. The statewide orders have been lifted. But the governor and other officials there are still encouraging people to, quote-unquote, do the right thing and continue to mask up. But they are not going to require it. And some businesses have lifted their mask restrictions. Others have not. A Mexican restaurant in Houston says people are threatening to call ICE on its staff because... Their restaurant is continuing the mask requirement. Texas Governor Greg Abbott dropping the statewide mask mandate. La da 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 da. The Houston Chronicle reports the owners of Pico's Mexican restaurant in Houston say they have gotten calls from people saying the staff's green cards and paperwork need to be examined. They're calling immigration on is because they continue to wear a mask. I mean, if you don't like the mask. Mandate. Don't go there. Don't patronize. If enough, if enough people don't patronize the business, they'll either go out of business or they'll lift their mask mandate. But for now, that's their choice. And people are actually calling immigration to try and get them shut down, deported, whatever. The Texas Restaurant Association is urging restaurants to continue to require staff to wear masks and encourage customers to wear them. 
as well. So it's not like they're going that far out on a limb here or doing anything dastardly, but I, I don't know. Don't do that. You know, it's... Let's, uh, let's be a little bit more sensitive to that. I just... I hate seeing that. I think this is a terrible thing. Anyway, there you go. Some of the uh, most interesting, most buzzworthy stories to get your Thursday morning started. As we mentioned, this is the first anniversary of the uh, initial coronavirus lockdowns around the uh, state of Ohio. The governor uh, ordered schools closed uh, on this day one year ago. Uh, that was soon followed by business closings and uh, so on. Uh, everybody knows the progression of events that began one year ago today. So uh, on this anniversary, it seemed appropriate to uh, spend some time analyzing Ohio's pandemic response one year later. State Representative John Cross with us uh, on the line. Uh, John, can you hear us there? Yeah, good morning, Chris. Okay, very, okay? very good. Um, I want to uh, talk a little bit about the timeline in the in the initial uh, reaction and in the initial uh, orders that that were uh, brought forth by the Ohio Department of Health and the governor, you were an early supporter uh, of measures to help slow the spread, flatten the curve. As a matter of fact, I, I recall you uh, described uh, Dr. Acton as impressive in the initial uh, weeks, in the initial press conferences, and uh, as this, but that. Uh, very quickly changed what was the impetus or what was the turning point for you where things kind of went sideways uh from your perspective well chris you know part of this was well first uh, you know uh this whole this whole anniversary is something hopefully that we we don't you know <laughs> want to continue to remember right it it, it it was the governor was fast to shut things down but as you can see it takes forever to get things open back up but but part of that pandemic you know the first 30 60 heck we even give them 90 days nobody knew what this virus was no one knew what was happening but when things really turned south was the lack of communication the lack of working with the legislature and the midnight orders that were extending and shutting things down and not working with the legislative body. So, so I think looking back, mm -hmm. people say, well, were you debating masks? Were you debating, you know, what, what safety measures? No, what we were debating was process and making sure we were following our Constitution. Because if you remember, Chris, mm -hmm. it really got off right. the rails for the primary election when the governor tried to move the primary election at the last 11th hour and had no constitutional authority to do that. And so you really saw government come unglued by not following uh, the constitutional process. And I think that's where things really got off the rails. So would it be fair to say that had the governor uh, taken the time to sit down with the leaders of the legislature and bring them uh, more into the fold in discussing uh, all of these moves, that, that maybe a lot of the uh, political wrangling that has happened uh, in, the, uh, in the past year probably could have been avoided? Yes, in hindsight, absolutely. You know, I think looking back, if if we had better communication but but also what what the whole pandemic revealed 
the pandemic revealed weaknesses in the system. In private sector business, it revealed weaknesses, but it also revealed strengths. It also revealed, you know, the importance of having <laughs> broadband and internet access for students mm-hmm. working from home, people working from home. But it also revealed that we had outdated laws that that the governor was using to his advantage uh, with regards to state health departments and local health departments. And so that's where we're, that's our job now. Our job is to go fix and update uh, our the Ohio Revised Code to make sure in future pandemics that, you know, we have appropriate checks and balances and appropriate process. And I think we've learned a lot through this process. Yeah. Well, well, hopefully we won't have uh, a next time, but uh, certainly understood. In hindsight, was uh, it maybe uh, an unrealistic expectation to think that this was going to only take 30 days or 60 days or even 90 days to get to the other side? Well, possibly. I mean, we didn't, we've never been through something like this, or I've never had uh, right. anything like this. So. So to the extent that we thought we could get through the summer and kind of wind down, I think we were all hopeful, but obviously that that has taken a longer process. The good news is it seems like it is really ramping down right now. So do we know it was going to take a year? No. Do we think it was a 90 days issue possibly, but you know, it is what it is. And I think we're, we're trying to make those proper adjustments to make sure in the future that whatever yeah. happens, uh, that we have a better process in place to deal with this. The reason I ask uh, about uh, perhaps unrealistic expectations, there are a couple of uh, lines of thought with that, is that if we had been all in early uh, on uh, locking things down, and there was almost immediate pushback when the when the governor started closing things down and, and uh, mask mandates and all of that. If we had been all in early, could we have curbed this in a shorter amount of time or the flip side of that question had we had a more measured response from the beginning would we be exactly where we are now but with uh, a lot less pain along the way well i don't think i don't think shutting things down and closing things down all in is still the answer you see other states uh like florida and other states that have not done that and their numbers have seemed to be uh, in a better position. I I think what we know now is we know how to operate. Uh, You know, locally manufacturing companies, local businesses know how to operate through uh, a a pandemic like this. And so I think moving forward, God forbid, if we ever have to go through this again, you don't shut the economy down, you don't stop business, you don't stop uh teaching our students, you, you certainly don't prevent people from going to church. Uh, what we do is we know how to operate. And I think with, with uh, certain safety guidelines in place, you know, uh, we can go on about our normal day and normal lives. Uh, but, but once again, let's hope we don't have to go through this process again. Yeah. And, and, I, and I'm, one of, I'm one of many who, do, who uh, I don't accept a new normal. So I think we've got to get back to normal. Uh, and not just say we're going to have a new normal. Uh, and so I think people are ready to get back to normal. And now that this virus obviously yeah. is really moving down yeah. the numbers. And, and again, uh, the, the reason we talk about, uh, you know, 
whether a different response would have been more appropriate is because we talk about the law of unintended consequences. Whenever you make these broad uh, type of uh, directives, uh, obviously uh, there have been a whole slew of unintended consequences. But again, uh, the law of unintended consequences plays out the other way uh, as well. As uh, some have pointed out, if uh, we had less pushback, uh, again, would was the unintended consequence delaying, uh, you know, dragging this out longer than it needed to be. So we could play that game uh, all day too. Sure, and 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 you know, but but yesterday was a big day uh, at the Ohio House and the Ohio General Assembly. We passed Senate Bill Twenty Two. Uh, it got confirmed by the Senate, and it is now heading to the governor's desk for signature. We now have proper checks and balances in place. We now have the ability, as the Ohio General Assembly, to step in and, after you know, uh, remove orders or rescind orders. And again, I know this is a technical situation, but we have to follow the Constitution. And my point is, the governor doesn't create laws. He was creating mandates and health orders. And so we, as the General Assembly, can remove those uh, mandates and executive orders by resolution uh, after 30 days if we want to. It mm-hmm. allows him to extend it to 90 days. So, so, so people say, well, why, why are you doing this? Well, 20, I think 20 to 24 other states have this have the exact same checks and balances in place and you can you can take politics completely out of this because in new york with a new york governor the new york governor's own democratic legislature is putting checks right. and balances on the governor of new york yeah so forget politics you can't argue politics in this situation yeah certainly certainly it is a, a valid point that uh, you know our whole system is built on the uh, idea of checks and balances so that is a uh, point well taken real quickly and i only have about a minute left i want to uh, ask uh, quickly, we've seen that texas and some other states have fully lifted all of their mandates uh, at this point, most notably Texas. Uh, We just had the uh, report, uh, just saw a report earlier uh, today that uh, the Texas Rangers say on opening day of the baseball season, they will not be limiting capacity at the stadium. It'll be sold out. Um, Is that kind of a test case in in your view? I mean, I'm sure you'd be watching very closely to see what happens as a result of all of those restrictions being lifted. Well, someone's got to be the first, and obviously Texas is pretty bullish to to be the first. Uh, and so, but you but soon after Texas did that, you started to see other states do the same. Yeah, our governor has put out some metrics whether we could attain those metrics to fully open. Some say we should be fully open by April. Uh, I have a good feeling that we will be fully opened here soon, and I think those numbers are ramping down. And yes, you know uh, the coronavirus is still out there. Uh, just the other day, we had a member of the legislature, uh, sadly, you know, he is uh, uh, recovering from it and, and doing just fine. But it's still out there. It, you know, this thing is going to be just like um, uh, what I predict to be the flu, and it's just going to have its its, its uh, ongoing process. Mm-hmm. But with that being said, vaccinations and, and uh, other therapies and stuff that's out there is really – um, you know, curbing that. So I think Ohio will get there like Texas. I think the legislature putting a little pressure on the governor to open up and the other states putting pressure. Uh, I think that's 
that that will get we'll get there. And I. Uh, and- I've got to, and I've got to jump in because I am absolutely flat out of time. But again, uh, State Representative John Cross, uh, thanks very much uh, again. Reflecting on some of the uh, pandemic response one year later, some of the lessons learned, uh, mistakes that were made, the laws of unintended consequences, and so on, and where we go from here. Now, the Good Mornings Community and Business Spotlight. Angela Dabosky is with us, the uh, CEO of the United Way of Hancock County, and you have uh, your big annual meeting coming up. Talk a little bit about what happens at the annual meeting. Uh, what this is all about. Well, first of all, we invite everybody from the community to come and attend. Usually, it's a uh, big celebration of things that happened in the previous year. Um, Last year, though, uh, was the first year that we had to do it virtually. Mm -hmm. So, uh, we were about, I don't know, five days into the community, uh, the state lockdown, and we had to go virtual. So, Mm -hmm. this year, we're going to do the same thing. Uh, It will be a lunchtime invitation on March 25th. You can go to our website and get the link to be able to join us. Mm -hmm. We'd love for the community to come in and hear and be encouraged by the amazing things that we've been able to do in 2020. From um, volunteer hours that are unprecedented around the community to um, just fundraising. We were able to raise over $125,000 for crisis response. How we've been able to tap into state and federal dollars first and stretch those dollars. Things Mm -hmm. like that. This in addition to all of the regular fundraising you do for the annual campaign. So you get some of the nuts and bolts and the numbers of all of that, but also people can learn uh, a lot more about what the United Way is doing. Right. And so our mission is to measurably improve lives in Hancock County. And so we do that in the areas of health, education, and financial stability. And our partners are doing boots on the ground, amazing work every single day. So it's a a way to highlight that as well. Now, uh, beyond that, you are also looking at creating a strategic plan moving forward. And to do that, you want to get feedback from the community. Absolutely. To us, it's very important to know where are community priorities um, and to give a voice to people. So again, on our website, under the annual meeting, there's a survey link that you can go and fill out. Tell us what your concerns are. Tell us areas that you would like to see more attention being paid. And we will factor that into our strategic plan and be able to just be more effective as we can in the community. That's what I wanted to ask with respect to the surveys. Uh, Are you going to take the results of that surveys and work it into a strategic plan that you already have? Or are you using that to construct the strategic plan kind of from scratch? Right. What I think is, is that COVID blew a lot of our plans out of the water. Mm. And so to me, it makes a lot of sense to say, let's start from fresh. Mm -hmm. Let's create a three-year plan based on where we are now. And the feedback we get from the community will help us to really understand that picture of where are we now. So as you said, everybody can participate in that survey and the link is up at your website. Is that right? Yes, at uwhancock.org. You just go to the annual planning page and the link will be right there. And about how long does it take to go through that? Well, it depends how fast. You can give us as much feedback as you want to, but the, the survey is set up just as a simple a check check the box kind mm-hmm. of thing. And then yeah. there's comments that you can leave. So okay. it could be as simple as a two to three minute answer, or you could, you could write us a dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> that works. And is there a deadline you want to have all of those responses uh, back by? Uh, We'd like to have it by early April. 
Okay. Uh, and then with that uh, strategic plan, the idea of putting all of that information together and generating that strategic plan, what's kind of the time frame on that? Well, again, a lot of the things that we're doing virtually this year, mm-hmm. so it does take a little bit longer than it normally would. So right. by the end of summer, we should have a strategic plan that we would be rolling out to the community. So we look forward to hearing more about that when the time comes. And again, that survey is up right now. We'll mention again the uh, annual meeting and the date for that is? The annual meeting meeting is March 25th at 12 noon. And if folks, uh, again, everybody invited, if folks want to get the link, uh, again, reference the website. Please go to our website at uwhancock.org. Angela DeBosca, again, CEO of the United Way of Hancock County with us this morning. Angela, thanks very much. Thank you. The Community and Business Spotlight is a promotional advertisement paid for by the featured sponsor. Time now for another Throwback Thursday where we go uh, dig into the archives and pull out some of our uh, favorite uh, interviews and topics that we've talked about in past shows. And sometimes it's uh, just because they're particularly memorable guests uh, that we've really stuck stuck with us that we particularly uh, enjoyed. Sometimes it's because uh, topics that we have talked about in the past on the show suddenly become uh, relevant and timely again. And this is one of those. Because, as we mentioned, it was a year ago today that the governor uh, ordered the shutdown of Ohio schools, and that set off the whole domino effect where just about everything ended up being closed, and we were locked down for uh, a couple of months, and we have been sort of in limbo ever since. And I don't think when anyone really, when, when this started, anyone really thought that it would be a year and this would still be a thing. We would still be dealing with this. I think... Most of us thought maybe uh, a few months and things would be back to normal. And at the time, you recall, when all of this started, we tried to you know, put a positive spin on all of this, saying everything will be okay. This isn't the first pandemic that humankind has faced in our history. And what history tells us is when things like this strike, absent a cure, what gets us through is staying personally strong and cultivating resilience. And that's the message that Chad Foster has long preached as a motivational speaker, author, and business executive. Back in April of last year, we spoke to him about cultivating resilience in challenging times. It is this week's Throwback Thursday. Chad, never a better time for that message than right now, right? Absolutely. Yeah, people are are facing a lot of adversity out there. The conditions that everybody are facing is something that many of us have have never seen and and hopefully will never again. And when we talk about uh, cultivating resilience, you have been there. You have lived it. Yeah, so in college, in my late teens, early 20s, I went blind due to an inherited retinal condition. Yeah, it was a bit of a trauma at the time, but it, it turns out to be one of the, the best gifts that I could have been given because I've learned that I have an opportunity to really help people if I'm intentional about it. So it's it's become my calling. It, it really comes down to that, uh, how many times have we heard it, that, that choice that you have when faced with those seemingly insurmountable challenges is, do I fold or do I become stronger and move forward? Exactly. And one of the key things that I learned was we have to be very intentional about the stories that we tell ourselves. For example, when I went blind, I could have chosen to tell myself a story of, you know, poor me and I have bad luck, or I could have chosen to tell myself that I went blind because I'm one of the very few people on the planet with the strength and toughness to overcome that. 
One of the other points that you bring up, and and I think is particularly appropriate right now because uh, we're in the midst of a pandemic with so much tragedy and and so much sadness, and some people look at a sense of humor as being in at times out of place. And I suppose that you know everything there's a time and a place for everything, but you say it's important not to lose our sense of humor in times like this. It makes the ups and downs of life easier to manage. It it can ease some of the tension, and certainly there's a time and place for it, right? We have to be very sensitive to the very real conditions that that everybody are facing right now, but but any levity we can add in an appropriate way to the things that we're facing, I think, just makes it that much easier. And you also talk about, and this uh, I I think is maybe one of the, the key points and, you know, maybe the most important thing to carry, uh, carry us through. And uh, that is to find meaning. And that's a little philosophical in that it's hard to right now in the moment, find any good, any meaning that can come out of what we're all experiencing, but trying to find the meaning and some way that this makes us better is really key. It's about, you know, purpose. You know, purpose will take our focus away from us and and put it on other people. How can we help other people in this pandemic is the question that that, that I keep asking. What can we do to help a neighbor or a friend Mm -hmm. navigate that? Basically, how do we give back? How do we pay it forward? And when we do that, what we find is that our attention shifts away from our own personal situation, whether that be in a pandemic, you know, the, the things that we're facing or maybe before or after the pandemic in a more normal uh, set of circumstances. You know, people are always focused on their own achievements. But when you you shift to purpose, you start to focus on more fulfilling things. And f- for me, it's the very reason that I went blind. That's my explanation to myself yeah. as to why I went blind. It's because I have an opportunity to help millions of people deal with the twists and turns that life that throws people's way. Yeah. And I've, I've had some success in the business world and won some you know, really big deals and some billion-dollar deals, but nothing that I've found comes close to the feeling that I get when I help another human being. Here's the biggest challenge, because this too shall pass. We will get beyond this pandemic life will kind of get back to normal isn't the biggest mm-hmm. challenge isn't the biggest challenge at that point to make sure that we still remain focused on all of those things that help get us through this here and now and make us hopefully make us better people once the reason for the reflection if you will is past us yeah completely and and those what you just mentioned chris are some great uh, positive outcomes of, of the tragedy that we're facing. People are going to have more time to reflect um, on, in terms of what's important to them and spend more time with family. And, you know, me personally, I, I normally travel 80% of the time, you know, and now the quarantine and pandemic has grounded everybody. It's an opportunity to not have to travel as much and spend more time with family. And, and so while it's challenging the circumstances that we're in, there are some little nuggets of silver lining that I think to your point, if we can appreciate those now and not completely forget about those or dismiss those, once we get back to normal, I think we'll all be better off. Wise words from Chad Foster uh, from April of last year, as we were just in the very early stages of the pandemic. May we now, a year later, as we see uh, the end in sight, 
remember that there uh, were some positives that came out of those and maybe just maybe we can hang on to those and make that part of our new normal moving forward. A lot there to think about uh, in our Throwback Thursday segment this morning. You can learn more about uh, Chad and his books uh, at our webpage. Go to goodmornings.net. You remember... What, a week or two ago, the big story, big news story, is that winter storm that blasted through Texas. Uh, It obviously was devastating for many residents there uh, that were without power and frozen pipes they've never had to deal with before. It just caused millions of dollars in property damage. Also did a lot of damage to crops there. Uh, Food producers took a big hit from the winter storm that, again, it just are not prepared for and the stuff they grow doesn't like cold weather very much so a lot of damage to the crops will it affect prices for consumers that is the question in today's everyday agriculture report Here is USDA contributor Gary Crawford. When President Biden visited Texas to view firsthand the devastation from that deadly winter storm in mid-February he said when a crisis hits our states like the one to hit Texas it's not a Republican or Democrat who's hurting it's our fellow Americans are hurting. And indeed, in the agricultural sector of Texas. Everybody's hurting. It just depends on which way, shape, or form it is. Justin Hale, an agricultural extension agent in north central Texas, and what he says is true for most of the Lone Star State. It was pretty devastating for our farmers and ranchers. Texas A&M AgriLife Extension economist Dr. Jeff Hyde, and he says that storm caused damage to facilities, equipment, animals, crops. You name it. Now, by the time you hear this, the dollar figure estimates of losses to the Texas agricultural sector may be higher, but the early assessments that came out last week put the overall ag losses at about $600 million. $230 million affecting the citrus crops, $228 million for livestock, and $150 million for vegetable crops. But Jeff Hyde told us once again, don't carve that loss assessment in stone. That's an initial estimate, and I would consider that conservative in almost all cases, because in some cases we've got to wait and see what the lingering impacts are going to be. For example, in the citrus arena, yes, we already know what crops were destroyed. The big question is... Were the trees damaged or just the crop? And uh, it may be a bit of time before we learn how badly the trees themselves were damaged. And also, when we went to press with this report, the damage assessment for the 4,000 or so Texas nursery landscape businesses had not even been done yet. Now, of course, Texas is also a huge livestock state. Those producers had to deal with deaths of all types of livestock, plus damage to poultry houses, huge heating costs if heat was available at all, and the storm certainly did a number on the dairy industry. I think one of the key losses there was due to transportation issues. And so there was a real challenge here in the state while roads were poor for trucks to pick up and deliver milk for processing. And so there was an awful lot of milk dumped. At one point, Texas dairies were dumping about $8 million worth of milk every day. So those are just a few examples of how the storm affected farmers in Texas. But how will the aftermath affect food prices at the supermarket? We asked USDA economist Carolyn Chellius about that, and she doesn't seem to think there will be much effect on retail prices or supplies, except maybe for one product. The product to be most concerned about would be grapefruit, because Texas produces about a third of the U.S. supply of grapefruit and a significant portion 
of the grapefruit crop was damaged in the storm. But Carolyn says based on last week's early loss numbers, there should not be significant price hikes for most foods. However, as Jeff Hyde told us, as far as the estimate for losses... That number will get bigger as we learn more. Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. There is breaking news and then there is broken news. This is the news that is already broken. This this report on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. A follow-up, first off, a follow-up to a broken news item that we had a couple of days ago. You remember the story about the driver who crashed her car while swerving to avoid a sofa that had fallen off a truck on Interstate 95 uh, in Florida? Uh, she got a traffic ticket. <laughs> she She's driving down the interstate, uh, or driving up the interstate, I guess it was, she was on the northbound I-95, uh, behind a truck. Sofa falls off a couch, falls off uh, the truck because it wasn't properly secured into the roadway. She swerved to avoid it, and she got a ticket uh, for failing to maintain proper lanes or an improper lane change. $166 traffic ticket. Well, the follow-up is she has had the fine and the citation waived. Good news there. The incident happened on February 20th. The Florida Highway Patrol released a statement saying the citation had been issued in error. The couple had been driving north on I-95 when the couch fell from the truck, and the driver lost control of the car when she swerved to avoid the tumbling sofa. Her car, the uh, Toyota Corolla that she was driving, actually struck the median and rolled over. The car was totaled. She and her boyfriend were not hurt, thank goodness. But I guess the Florida... Highway Patrol finally came to its senses and decided that (laughs) that was adding insult to injury, quite literally in this case, and they waived the traffic ticket. So good news there, because we (laughs) apparently they got a lot of heat uh, from that uh, after uh, news outlets reported it. Here's what's happening in today's uh, broken news. Speaking of uh, traffic incidents and uh, insurance, I mean, try to try to explain that to her, her insurance company. You know, so I was driving on the interstate, a sofa fell off a truck, I swerved and totaled the car, and I was the one who got cited. I mean, it, anyway, so hopefully she'll be able to explain. Try to explain this to your insurance company. The Oakland County Sheriff's Office shared a video recently that showed a car traveling on a rural road that was suddenly jumped onto and over by a stampede of deer. <laughs> jumped on... And over the car on the road as it. I mean, have you ever hit a deer uh, on the road? I guess in this case, the deer got the better of the car. Um, the uh, dashboard camera footage shows the car quickly coming to a stop and some deer jumping right over it, while some end up jumping onto the car and either jumping or falling off. <laughs> I mean, that's that's taking uh, a deer car encounter to the next level. A whole herd. Just jumped right on and over the car. Sheriff's office said no humans or deer were injured in the incident. But again, thank goodness there's dash cam footage because otherwise would the insurance company even believe you if you try and tell them that. You'll never believe what happened. A whole herd of deer. This. Uh, speaking of vehicle stories, a dramatic car, cha- car chase 
happened in Los Angeles yesterday. Police say a Nissan was involved in a hit-and-run incident near Diamond Bar Boulevard, uh, which uh, led deputies to give chase. The driver attempted to escape and barged through stationary cars and careened into other vehicles before coming to a halt. Police tried to get the driver to exit the vehicle, but she refused. So rubber bullets, a drone, and a SWAT team were all used. The hours-long standoff ended when police fired tear gas into the car, prompting a little girl to run out of the car and into the arms of deputies. They had not realized that there was a kid inside. Police then surrounded the open door of the car, finally extracted the driver who was taken into custody. Not clear as to how the child was related to the driver, but she was taken to a local hospital to be treated for unspecified injuries. No other details have been released. That's crazy. Lead police on a high-speed chase and a standoff, rubber bullets, tear gas, and all of that, and then there turns out to be a kid in the car. Ooh, man. Crazy story. And finally, in the broken news this morning, because there's always got to be a story from Florida, and this, again, involving vehicles. A Florida man who nearly hit a gas pump reportedly handed a package of uh, dank gummies to a deputy who tried to help him. Deputies say they were called to a gas station in Naples, Florida, after witnesses reported a suspicious man appearing to be under the influence nearly hit one of the pumps at the uh, gas station. This is according to a report from the Collier County Sheriff's Office. The suspect, Domenico Lopez, allegedly saw the deputy and asked for his help in calling AAA because his car wouldn't start. Turns out his car wouldn't start because the keys were not in the ignition. (laughs) Well, that will do it. (laughs) That will do it. And that's probably the first indication that maybe this guy shouldn't be driving. After first claiming he didn't have the keys to the vehicle, Mr. Lopez then rummaged through his pockets and, lo and behold, pulled out the keys. The deputy then asked Mr. Lopez for his driver's license, and this time he pulled out a small green package labeled Cannabis-Infused Dank Gummies. (laughs) Probably not what you want to hand over to the cops. When they ask for your driver's license, deputies say Mr. Lopez also had a uh, package of medicated nerds rope, medicated nerds ropes uh, that contained 400 milligrams of THC per rope. Uh, Lopez, Mr. Lopez claimed his girlfriend had a medical marijuana card due to a cancer diagnosis, according to his affidavit. But Mr. Lopez did not have a card and he was taken into custody A small baggie of cocaine was also found on his person, so there's that. Uh, He is facing charges of possession of cocaine and possession of a controlled substance, and no word on whether he ever did get his car started again. I don't know. There you go. My car won't start. Oh, yeah, the keys aren't in. That's your first clue something is wrong. There you go. That is today's broken news. Uh, This report on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services, and we now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. 
For a year, we've worked from home, kept kids out of school, canceled holidays and vacations, put up with postponed sports, gave up nights out, and more. You may be wondering how much of the old normal will come back and are Zoom calls and working from home here for good? You have questions, and that's why we're committed to keeping you up to date with the latest information. It's here at 1330 WFIN, 95.5 FM, and at WFIN.com. And now your daily download. This morning, the numbers behind the news, the statistics that shape our lives. This is really interesting uh, research from uh, Inrix, which is a uh, transportation analytics company. Uh, Obviously, over the past year, with the coronavirus lockdown and people working from home, people uh, out and about less, spending more time at home, uh, not as many things going on, that has led to a huge reduction in traffic on a nation's uh, highways. And last year, Americans saved millions, if not billions of hours, not sitting in traffic uh, as compared to previous years. Uh, these, uh, these are the numbers. Uh, over the past year, Americans lost 26 hours of their lives sitting in traffic. Compared to 2019, when that number was 99 hours. So, a significant decrease in the amount of time that we have spent over the past year just sitting in traffic. Now, not surprisingly, urban areas uh, were you know, saw the biggest declines uh, in, in traffic hours lost. Uh, in Washington, D.C., number one on the list, 77% less time spent sitting in traffic. Uh, for people in Washington, D.C. last year. 77% less time sitting in traffic than in 2019. New York City, home to some of the worst bottlenecks, still lost about 100 hours due to traffic delays, uh, but that's about 28% less than the year before. So still considered a win. As a whole, the nation drove about 82% less miles uh, in 2020 as compared to 2019. Uh when it comes to passenger vehicles, big box cars and tankers, on the other hand, are about on par, but with less cars on the road, they uh, spent less time sitting in traffic as well. In all, this is a kind of interesting. You throw all of this data into a calculator, and uh, Americans saved 3.4 billion hours thanks to COVID-19. 3.4 billion hours that we would have spent... In a normal year, just sitting in traffic, uh, we got to do other things. The uh, flip side of that, or the irony of it, is that there was less to do. <laughs> we had all this extra time. We didn't have much of anything to do over uh, the course of all of those hours. However, when you put it into a productivity ca- uh, calculator, the theory being people, especially in their commutes, were not sitting in traffic either because they were working at home or they didn't have to fight the traffic to get to their jobs for those who still had to go to uh, work uh, at uh, a separate location in in 2020. Uh, That increased worker productivity to the collective tune of about $51 billion in time saved. $51 billion of added productivity in 2020 thanks to the pandemic, all because traffic was lighter than it was in 2019. So if you're looking for a silver lining in the pandemic, I guess that would be one of them. 
to tell you about a program uh, being jointly put on here over the next several months by the Black Heritage Library and the Findlay-Hancock County Public Library, teaming up to introduce children to stories about a variety of global cultures and traditions, incorporating interactive guides and hands-on activities. It's called Stories Around the World, this program. And joining us are Sarah Kramer, uh, Children's Services, uh, the Findlay-Hancock County Public Library, and Beth Ann uh, Nissen, uh, an educator, current board member of the Black Heritage Library and Multicultural Center. And ladies, thanks very much for uh, joining us this morning. We appreciate it. Thank uh, you. Thank you very much. So so tell us a little bit about, Beth Ann, tell us a little bit about uh, this program and, uh, and how it came to be. Talk about the genesis of this program. I'd love to do that. Uh, you know, Chris, what I think for sure is that when children or students walk into the Black Heritage Library and Multicultural Center, they are so excited. You can just sense the energy. When they look around and see artifacts from all different cultures around the world, and they can play the jambe drums and the rain sticks from Mm -hmm. Africa, and they can touch and engage in Japanese dishes for the uh, Japanese tea ceremony or pick up uh, kanji brushes and write and try kanji brush writing on rice paper or play a Native American footprint game. It, the energy is so happy and so positive and, um, you know, I, it, it's just a wonderful thing. So knowing that the story of Cinderella is, in a sense, um, the theme of it is told in all different cultures mm-hmm. around the world. I wanted to use that as an idea to extend programming with children and to engage children in cultures around the world. You know, um, we have our typical Cinderella story with right. the lost shoe and Cinderella. Um, now, the, the stories around the world don't have the typical Cinderella, but what they do have is a similar theme. So it's a character that is mistreated horribly and has a good heart and good intentions. And the wonderful thing is that in the end, this character is is saved, is comes ahead, mm-hmm. and is um, wins in the end. Yeah, and it they they have the theme of goodness wins over evil, and children love that. And so, so and with so you're that, take, and, I reach. Mm-hmm. No, I was going to say so. You're taking uh, that uh, universal story, as you say, that's uh, told in uh, all virtually all languages and all cultures uh, as a children's story, right. and introducing that to kids by uh, and and thereby introducing them to all of these uh, different cultures. And, and Sarah, you have a, a number of uh, different cultures planned for the uh, first uh, three months of, uh, of this uh, program. It's a monthly series beginning later on this month and continuing in uh, April and May. Uh, what uh, cultures and, and what stories are you uh, focusing in on here? Yeah, so our first program will be on March 24th, and mm-hmm. we'll be talking about Native American cultures and specifically Algonquin cultures. And the book we'll be reading is The Rough Face Girl by Rafe Martin. 
This is something of a classic. I know I read it when I was a kid, and I'm sure a lot of other parents out there will be familiar with this story as well. Um, so one important thing that we're doing for all of our programs is inviting a guest who is from that culture to be a part of our program, mm. to talk to the kids about it <clears throat> from that kind of firsthand experience. Yeah. Um, and Beth Ann's been really great about finding um, these individuals and, and coming up with hands-on activities. So I'm going to let her tell you a little bit more about the guests and the activities. So the guest for our Rough Face Girl story, which is Algonquin Native American, is Georgia Adams. She will be sharing about her traditional culture, and uh, there's birch bark canoes in the story. So she has a model of a birch bark canoe, and the children will be able to create their own canoe. So mm-hmm. with each story, we will be providing a borrowed book from the library, as well as the materials to be able to actually create an item that's culturally related to the story. So as you were and mentioning, Sarah yeah, so as you were mentioning, uh, this is so important to give kids that hands-on uh, activity, which really uh, kind of sears it into their uh, memory and, and uh, aids with their understanding. And the, the fact that you will have uh, sort of an interactive guide that they can talk to and ask questions of uh, will just make the, make the whole thing come alive for the kids. Absolutely. I'll let Sarah tell more about the program. Yes. So our April program will be talking about Chinese culture Mm -hmm. and reading uh, Ye Shen by Ailing Louie. Okay. Uh, A lot of people say that the Cinderella story originated in China. So I thought we thought this would be a fun one to include in okay. our discussions of Cinderella stories. And then, and then real quickly, the April story is, I don't mean to rush you along, we're uh, short on time, so I want to make sure that we get this in. The April story oh, is? Yes. Um, so that was our April story, and then our May story will be about uh, Indian culture, and okay. it's called Anklet for a Princess by Leela Mehta. Okay, so again, uh, for all of these, you have uh, interactive uh, guides uh, to uh, present the uh, story and put it into context for the kids and hands-on activities. Yeah. Now, this is uh, geared to kids grades 1 through 7, and you do need uh, folks to sign up. Uh, how do they do that, Sarah? So they can register by going online to our library's website. It's findleylibrary.org. And right on our homepage, we have a link to our events calendar. Okay. So you can find the program in the calendar and then sign up from there. Um, but if you prefer offline registration, we invite you to call our children's desk, and we'd be happy to help with that. All right. Uh, again, the uh, first of the program is uh, Wednesday, March 24th. So coming up here uh, very soon, and then again in April and May, and uh, we'll see uh, beyond that, but committed to uh, March, April, May. Uh, and again, uh, sign up will be on the library's website, which we have linked up at our webpage. Again, uh, Sarah Kramer, uh, Children's Services at the Finley Hancock County Public Library, Beth Ann Misson, longtime educator, board member of the Black Heritage Library and Multicultural Center. Ladies, thank you both for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you, thank you. so much. And that is our podcast for today. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. Remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show at our webpage, goodmornings.net. We're always on 24-7 on the World Wide Web. Coming up tomorrow, we continue our look back on a year of dealing with the coronavirus crisis. Mayor Christina Mern will join us to talk about 
weathering the storm, the city of Findlay. And also, could we have some additional competition in the micropolitan community category very soon? This is an interesting story that we'll talk about with the mayor as well. So until tomorrow morning, that is good mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. Catch you back here tomorrow.